out there, all you beautiful butterflies. Welcome to another week of A Little Greener, podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. I am one of your hosts. My name is Sarah. I am joined by the ever-wonderful Casey. Oh, hey. Hi, guys. How are you, Sarah? I'm fine. The most exciting thing that happened to me this week was my dog threw his head up into my jawbone yesterday. In like he was just excited. It wasn't anything, but right. he just flipped his head up and cracked it literally <sighs> into my jawbone. Oh. He's none the worse for wear. I cannot believe he didn't hurt himself because I cried. Like <laughs> I was like, did something break? Which maybe I'm just a wimp because everything's fine. Like it doesn't hurt to eat or talk or anything, but it does hurt. Like if I touch it, I can still feel it today but man uh, no head head butt wounds are no joke like if you've <laughs> ever been like stepped on by a two-year-old in the wrong way or I have actually been headbutt in the face by a human being before <laughs> and that is not fun I can attest to that was that during during a, a sporting event it was during a quidditch match That's and it was intentional <laughs> it, it hurt a lot <laughs> but I digress no more headbutting Murray Right? I'm glad he's okay. I'm glad you're largely okay. Yes, everything's <laughs> fine. But that was literally the most exciting thing that happened to me all week. The weeks are flying by. It is they the are. end of July. What the oh heck? My. I'm going to see you soon. I'm going to see you soon. That's very exciting. That's our And exciting. you had like, you had wedding events and things this week. So I'm sure yes. you had a busy week. I had my bridal shower. That was wonderful. It was a nice little gathering. And let me tell you, um, my aunt Sandy had some gifts from my aunt who is up in Boston. And so they had them sent to their house and she was like, I had wrapping paper. Then I realized I didn't have enough wrapping paper for it. And so she said, I was about to drive out to target to go get another roll of wrapping paper. And that's when I realized, no, that's not what Casey would want me to Yay! do. And so it, it was wrapped in like butcher paper with these cutouts of wrapping paper and little hearts at the ends. And I thought it was really cute. And I'm so touched that she was like, Casey has a podcast about this. And it was so sweet. So that's wonderful. Yeah. So see, there's examples that happen all the time in daily life. So that's right. Being just a little greener. Thanks, Aunt Sandy. So Sarah, what was our homework last week? Uh, we had a, a couple of different things, but I think the, the big action item was to reach out to, to your representatives. <laughs> Guys, my dog, my dog is so distracting. Once again, right now, I apologize for the background noise, uh, to reach out to your representatives to let them know that cutting carbon emissions, switching to clean energy is something that is important to you, if it be so. And I don't know about you, Casey, I haven't done it yet just because, like I said, the week just, they're flying by. I didn't realize that it had already been a week, but it is literally pulled up on my computer right now. I have a list of my representatives. I'm going to reach out to at least one today and then to try to do the rest over the next few days. And I did look up my house representative and he is actually on the climate uh, climate and energy committee and so oh, i've looked up some of where he stands on issues so i'm gonna just reach out directly about that and thank him for that and so not quite completed but it is now firmly on my on the top of my to-do list 
Excellent. I uh, got halfway there in that I looked up who my new state representatives mm. and things are now that I've moved, not that yeah. they have changed recently. I am also planning on doing a little bit of research for our Senate candidates here in Pennsylvania. We have a Senate race and a governor's race coming up, and those are going to be really, really big pivotal swing statey stuff going on. So definitely want to reach out to those candidates and let them know where I stand and do some research. So I know specifically, I have a general idea where they are, but I want to know specifically what they're advocating for and where I can kind of push some of those buttons a little bit. So yeah, I'm on delayed homework as well, but I will do it. I promise. (laughs) Yep. Like we always say, it's never a must do this week, but we just try to give them every week and you can do them as you are able, but we like to talk about them just to sort of keep each other accountable and make sure even if we're not taking every single step that we are taking steps where we can. Yeah. Well, I decided to stay topical this week. Um, There was some news that came out about monarch butterflies. So I wanted to do a pod about these really amazing animals and what that current news means. But I wanted to start out, Sarah. I didn't write my question down, so I'm about to stump you with your memory. Um, Gosh, Casey. (laughs) I'm sorry. This is this is the easiest breaking the ice questions. Do you have you ever raised butterflies like in a classroom or in your house? Not that I can recall, at least specifically not at home. I suppose it's possible that maybe we did a classroom project at some point when I was a kid, but certainly nothing major that I remember. I know a few people that have done so. I do remember having a a little insect kit where you could sort of catch and identify insects, but I don't recall ever having an actual raise your own butterfly type thing. I, in the fifth grade did, I was in my gifted class. We had to do a presentation at the end of the year to hone our skills as 10 year olds uh, to present in front of groups. I'm sure I did terribly, but I did use PowerPoint for the first time and um, mine was about butterflies. And so we raised painted lady butterflies at my house. I named them all. Um, I remember one of them was named Paige and that's the only one I remember. <laughs> um, but uh, we, we raised them and I got to release them at the end and it was super, super cool. So I have always really been interested in butterflies in general. And I think once anyone learns more about them, whether you're like freaked out about them, like our friend Olivia is, (laughs) or if you're like, they're fine. No, they're pretty cool. I promise. Even if you're like, that's in passing fine. No, they're very cool. So we're going to talk about that, but also they're super important. So we're going to talk about the current state of monarch butterflies and the news that happened this week. So stick around. We'll talk about it in a second. All right, guys, we are back with the main section of our episode. Today, we're going to be talking about monarch butterflies. They were recently declared endangered by the IUCN. We're going to talk a little bit more about the specific details of that in the end, because there's a couple kind of caveats to all of that language there. But let's start off by learning a little bit more about them, because they're not just like a butterfly. They're kind of the butterfly. Yes. This is the one I feel like everybody, you say monarch butterfly and everybody can picture them in their head. 
Yes. Like I'm pretty sure their Facebook's emoji of a butterfly. Yes. My, my Apple phone is like a blue morpho, but when it goes to Facebook, it's like, nope, it is a monarch. Mm -hmm. And I respect that. I think that's cool. Today, we're going to be mostly talking about the migratory subspecies of monarch. So that's already one disclaimer on this conversation. It was the migratory subspecies that was declared endangered. And just to further clarify this because this is something that's been confusing to me basically if you're in north america this is what we have for the most part mostly the migratory species i think that there's actually a population in florida that doesn't migrate but for the most part if you're listening from north america this is what we have other parts of the world if you're listening from other parts of the world you may you don't have the migratory species but it gets confusing and i know we'll talk more about this too because there's a western you talk about western and eastern populations here in the united states those are both the same thing those are both the migratory yes yes so if you have a monarch butterfly if you're like in the caribbean or south america or there's even some overseas that have been introduced Mm -hmm. different areas and i think there actually might be some that are native out there monarchs in general are their own species and then we can break them down further into subgroups so most of this applies actually to all of those monarchs so if you see this beautiful intricately lined orange and black butterfly kind of floating through the wind imagine it in your brain. Let's, let's use our imagination on this one. It'll land on flowers and drink their nectar. And eventually it'll move on to lay her eggs on a milkweed plant. This is very important to the story. This is your first part that you need to remember. She lays her eggs on a milkweed plant uh, and she does it one by one. The eggs are laid often underneath the leaves of that plant. And she will lay between hundred and 300 eggs. These are her legacy Shortly after this, she will pass away. She has lived her butterfly life. So when they hatch out, Sarah, have you ever read A Very Hungry Caterpillar? One of my favorites. It's so excellent. (laughs) It's so good. So if you've got kids and you don't have that in your library, please go get it right now. So they hatch out. This is very accurate. They are very, very, very (laughs) hungry. This is basically all caterpillars do is they eat and they poop and they shed their skin. That's the other thing that they do really. So they basically eat meat for two weeks. They grow so quickly that they have to shed their skin between different phases. Um, These are called instars, these different phases, but they basically become larger and larger. Sarah, how would you describe a caterpillar of a monarch butterfly? Their coloration, they're sort of black, white, and yellow stripey. And Mm -hmm. they're, I would say they're kind of buffer like buff caterpillars they're not at least after once they're getting to yes. be their full size they're not like the little I remember we used to always find these little tiny fuzzy caterpillars I don't know what they were a moth caterpillar of some kind that when I was a kid but the that were just really small skinny short but the monarchs once they're full grown they get they get they get chonky yeah <laughs> they've got these little like feeling mechanisms on top of their Mm -hmm. head that look like antenna. If you're a bug nerd, they're not technically antenna. And then they've got their little feet as well. Mm -hmm. And within the about two weeks that they are a caterpillar, they grow about 2000 times their original mass. That's crazy. Mind blowing. It's so (laughs) crazy. So every year I give actually a talk on monarch butterflies at my dad's store. We do a a butterfly release, which we'll talk about a little bit later. And I did research one time because I wanted to know what a human baby would change into if it was 2000 times its original size, a T-Rex. 
that's the size we're talking about is like a human baby to T-Rex. <laughs> that's a great mental image as well. I read somewhere too, that as far as length is concerned, it's like a baby growing to the size of a three-story building. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love these comparisons. These are super cute. I think that they're a very attractive caterpillar species. Like there's caterpillars that look like bird poop. And then there are these guys. Truth. And those bird poop caterpillars are trying to look like bird poop because they're trying not to get eaten. So Sarah, why would monarch caterpillars just be like, hey, I'm a caterpillar. I'm, I'm here to live. I actually don't know the reason behind their coloration. Is it just warning? Yeah, it's most likely like other brightly colored things in nature. Milkweed is kind of poisonous. And so are the caterpillars that eat it. So they ingest this poison because they're eating so much of the leaves. When they poop, it's called frass, which is like one of my favorite words, frass, caterpillar poop. And so when they ingest this poison, it makes them poisonous for birds. So really they're advertising that they're there to show, hey, you don't want to even eat me. We talk about that a lot with adult butterfly coloration. For some reason, I just never thought about it. So two weeks, caterpillars doing its thing and that thing is eating. And then what comes next, Sarah? Then it go, it becomes the chrysalis. So this is the, the caterpillar is the larval stage of right. development. And then the chrysalis is the pupa stage of development. And y'all, if you have never read or seen, like watched a video of a caterpillar changing into a butterfly, do yourself a favor and watch. It is one of the most bonkers things that I feel like happens in the world. They liquefy themselves. That is literally what happens. So butterflies don't spin cocoons. They're not making right cocoon for themselves you talked about how they'll shed in between in stars they basically shed one final time when they're getting ready to go into this stage and then so they shed their skin and then that layer that they reveal basically hardens and then they liquefy themselves inside so what does the outside look like when they shed that last time you mean it yeah and it hardens yeah for monarch specifically i think it's really pretty is it green yeah it's like that jade green green, and it's got little tiny gold dots on it and that's their oxygen ports so that they can breathe but they're not like breathing with lungs or anything because as sarah has just said if that has not struck you they are now liquid There are some sort of respiratory tubes or something, right? I think there's something and, but then, yeah, but basically they, they release enzymes, they liquefy their organs, except for these little clusters of cells. They're called imaginal discs. I just learned that today. I had never heard that word before, but they have these, these groups of cells for each basically part of their body that mm-hmm. they're going to need as an adult butterfly. So they liquefy themselves and then they use that to help feed these imaginal discs to turn into a butterfly. I can't. <laughs> okay. Re- remember when we did our octopus episode and I said the human language does not have the correct words for what is happening for this caterpillar. Yeah. I mean, it is, uh, 
you can argue that those are actually exactly what is happening. And yet that does not work in my can brain. Can you imagine if to go no. from, to go from like a child to a teenager, if we just like melted into a puddle on the floor and then reformed. <laughs> actually, that sounds horrible. <laughs> it sounds so bad, but yeah. So there's some pretty crazy stuff that has been recently studied with these guys. They have done studies showing that perhaps the caterpillar that turns into a butterfly then retains some memory from when it was a caterpillar. Isn't that also crazy? I can't remember what I did yesterday. And these <laughs> fair point. Yeah. No, like it, it liquefies itself. It digests itself and then it reforms. Now for this stage for monarchs, it's generally again, like a 10 days to two weeks situation, but for some caterpillars, they will be the pupa stage for over a year, mm. which is crazy. And in some of them, they will actually have these imaginal discs. So they are basically, by the time that caterpillar hatches out of the egg, they have those imaginal discs within them. You know, yeah. in a movie when they're like, it was inside you the whole time. <laughs> like that's like the, the, how they recognize their power. That is exactly what caterpillars have inside them. Like that butterfly was in you the they're, whole time. They have literally. butterfly superpowers from literally, the time that yeah. they're in the egg. Exactly. They've got these tiny little clusters of organized cells. It's crazy. So they, some caterpillar species will actually form some of these structures, like the imaginal cells will start multiplying and organizing before they even hit the pupa stage. So in some caterpillars, they'll actually start even forming wings in the inside of that caterpillar. Um, Ah. Yeah. (laughs) But I don't know why that creeps me out more than the alternative. Inside every caterpillar is literally a butterfly. Anyway, they go through this over time, that green chrysalis outside starts to thin and thin and thin. So you can actually see the shape of the butterfly on the inside. You'll see kind of the patterns on the wings and then they will break free out of that outer shell. And when they come out, they look pretty funky. They've got like little smushy wings. And so they've got to pump a lot of the liquid that's in their body up into the wings to inflate them. So if you've ever gone to like a butterfly house or something, you will mm-hmm. see people move them from the chamber with all the chrysalises hanging and then move them into a chamber that has maybe some food and water and allows them to push their wings out and have some more space. So they emerge as a butterfly and butterflies are their own sort of delight. Sarah, do you have any favorite butterfly facts? Beyond what we just talked about, I feel butterflies are just pretty amazing all around. I mean, the the things that people seemed to get intrigued by butterflies, the things like they taste with their feet, basically. They have taste organs in their feet. I think their wings are pretty amazing. Butterfly wings, I mean, we talked about the monarch being sort of the most well-known, perhaps, but Obviously, butterfly wings have all these different beautiful colors and patterns. Their wings are actually covered in little tiny scales, which is pretty crazy. That's their, their, we've talked about scientific names before. Their group name that they're in is Lepidoptera. It basically means scaly wing because <laughs> that's what they have, but they make these, these beautiful colors. The males have special scales as well that will release pheromones to attract the ladies. So I don't know. I think butterflies just in general are pretty amazing. And of course, we're going to be talking about the monarch migration, which is one of the most amazing butterfly facts, I think. Yes. Not to get too ahead of ourselves. These monarch adults 
have four wings. So two front wings, two back wings. And like you said, they're covered in these scales. The males tend to have these eye spots at the bottom. I'm not hundred percent sure if that's where the pheromones come out, but basically if you see monarchs flying, you will see the females have kind of thicker, smudgier black lines and the males have thinner lines with a little spot on the bottom, like in the center of each hind wing. And that's how you tell the males and females apart. I was watching a SciShow video with Hank Green my hero. We love Hank. And he was talking about basically that some butterflies have these structures that help push out these pheromones. And what he mentioned is basically the fact that butterflies are beautiful to us is entirely by coincidence. Them being beautiful in the eye of a human is just a happy coincidence of nature and it's it's an accident and i'm so pleased that we get to live in a world that has beautiful butterflies with all these different colors and such diversity um but there's also weird things about butterflies like these special organs that some of them have that are kind of terrifying luckily monarchs get to kind of veer on the majestic side of that they're cold-blooded so in the morning you're going to see them with their wings folded out flat so that they can soak up some of that sunshine it warms them up so that they can then go about the rest of their day and then they have a proboscis, which oh, is like that proboscis. If you ever seen a proboscis monkey, they've got like a big old little floppy nose. Um, but yeah, it's basically a, a nose mouth situation where it's curly when they curl it up and then they'll stick it out like a straw to suck up the nectar. It just, there's something sort of elegant about it in my mind. I don't really know why, but that's just the way that they can extend it and then curl it up. I just think is fascinating. And I saw you, you mentioned on here, the, the legs too, they have six yeah. legs, but the, that's another just sort of crazy. It's the unimportant, but thing that I enjoy caterpillars too also have six legs. They are insects. This is a defining feature of insects, but if you look at a caterpillar, it looks like they have a lot of legs usually, but they only have six true True legs. legs. And then they have all of these other things that are called pro legs and they're just not real legs. They're just, they just look like legs. So that in case anybody ever asks you how, uh, when you're teaching your kids about insects that are only have six legs and they go, but what about a caterpillar? That's why. Yes. They've got those little bloopy little legs. Yes. Little (laughs) fake ones. So the adult monarch butterfly feeds primarily on nectar from lots of native flowering plants, and they're only going to live a couple of weeks too themselves. Normally they live about two weeks. They lay their eggs and the cycle continues. However, there's occasionally a plot twist. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so this time of year is when we're starting to see monarchs up my way. So in Pennsylvania, really late July through beginning of September is when we'll see monarchs in our area. And as it gets cooler, instead of laying eggs, something within the monarch's body triggers them to go into diapause. Diapause is basically a developmental pause. So it stops them from aging. Some reptiles go through a diapause in the egg where their embryo will stop developing in there. For this, this happens to the adult butterfly where they stop going through the normal processes of aging and decline. This happens to the adult monarch in this generation because in a lot of other butterflies, it happens in a different stage and they will overwinter as pupa sometimes or or eggs too, I think, right? Depending on the species. It's one of the reasons why they tell you not to 
scoop up all your leaves in your yard is lots of caterpillars for moth and butterfly species will spend over winter in there, but not the monarchs. They are not about this cold weather. They are headed south. So they will start their migration down south. Sarah, I've provided a little map here. Yes. So you mentioned earlier, there's an Eastern and a Western population of migratory monarch butterflies. You did kind of mention earlier, Florida has a resident population of monarch butterflies. So if you're there all year, you may see them, especially in the South of Florida all year round. I I think some of them do migrate still right in the Northern part of the state. I think sometimes join up with, this is sort of a sidebar, but (laughs) no, no problem. My understanding is, is that the population in Florida some are migratory, some are residential, but because of the presence of stochastic events, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about in a little bit, what a stochastic event is, that Florida population would not be able to be residential and not have contributors from the migratory population. So they do intermix between the, the migratory. It's not so much. I think this is an important factor as well. It's not necessarily entirely biology. If the butterflies think that there's a suitable habitat, they might stay. So up north, not much we can do. (laughs) We're going to have winter. Right. In Florida, we might see some of these butterflies stick around. But if there's a really cold winter, they could all die. So, Sarah, what part of the country gets the eastern population and which part gets the western population? The Rockies are kind of your dividing line. So east of the Rockies is your eastern population, obviously. Uh, (laughs) And they're going to basically migrate from Canada and the United States down to Mexico. And then that Western population, do some of them still go down as far or they basically just go into California? From what I could see, they mostly go into California in the part of Southern California that has very similar climate conditions to the Mexico location as well. This is also very important that they go down to these locations. They seem to use a combination of the Earth's magnetic field and the position of the sun. Scientists feel pretty confident from what I could see that it's not one or the other, but probably a combination of both. But they tend to return to the same places every year. Now, this is mind-blowing because just to fast forward a little bit, when they're done with the winter, when they're making their way back up, it is not their children that are then going to make that journey next time. As they go north, they will resume doing butterfly things, mate, breed in like Texas, and then the next generation will continue north. And that's why those butterflies are just appearing now here in in Pennsylvania versus in Texas, you would have started seeing them earlier. And so normally there's four or five generations of butterflies that happen over the course of the year. Only one makes the full trip. But if they fly from Canada all the way down to Mexico, it is over 2000 miles. A little butterfly, y'all. I killed a butterfly once because (laughs) it flew into my face. As I was riding my bike, these are small, fragile things that are flying thousands of miles of a species that normally only lives two weeks. And they Uh are pausing, literally pausing their development to fly two to 3000 miles to overwinter just to 
lay eggs and die and have their offspring <laughs> and future generations go what back a bleak them. way to look at life that's they're just they're doing, doing this though. to lay eggs and die that's what we're all here for right so <laughs> But, but I mean, if you bring up a good point, flow into your face and die all the time. If they get too close to the fans in our greenhouse trying to blow heat out of there, they can't outfly the wind. This is a tiny butterfly. Importantly, very, very many tiny butterflies that need to make this journey hundreds to thousands of miles across lots and lots of things that are bigger and stronger than a little butterfly. It's the so wind, stressful. I mean, how me. do they even fly in the wind? Like, I don't, I don't know. You know, I get stressed oh, out by know. bird migrations. And then now we're just. <laughs> I know. What, you guys should listen to our migratory bird episode because there's already a lot of fraught things going on with that. But yeah, they, they normally wait for morning because it's slightly less windy. They can't travel at night because it gets too cold. There's lots of issues, but the Eastern population are the ones who go down to Mexico and they typically overwinter in the same 11 to 12 mountain areas in the states of Mexico and Michoacan from October to late March. So they are roosting in these forests in fir trees, sometimes pine trees, sometimes oak trees. It's a little bit elevated, so about two miles above sea level. And basically they all cluster together. Sarah, have you seen a like tree loaded with monarch picture before? Pictures, yeah. It's crazy. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of monarch butterflies clustered on trees. And by clustering together, it's kind of the same way that the bees will stay warm here when it, where we get winter bats, is they bite right? and bats. Yeah. But bats are a little more warm blooded than these guys. Right. True. Yes. Not, Important I wouldn't say point. like us yes. warm blooded, but more warm blooded these guys. Yeah. They're using basically the, the big mass of them yeah. to consolidate heat and it ranges from about freezing to 15 degrees Celsius. We're going to do a quick calculation. Sorry, guys, to Fahrenheit. I hate that the world does these things. 59 degrees is <laughs> max in those areas. And there's a decent amount of humidity there. The butterflies basically need to not dry out because that decreases their heat. They can't get too wet or that also decreases their heat. Think about like stepping in a puddle when it's really cold terrible. You're going to lose a whole bunch of your heat. And if it gets below freezing, they're going to have to start using their fat reserves to be able to survive. So the similar thing happens to the Western population. They go to a spot in California and they actually use non-native eucalyptus trees there, which I thought was really interesting. That's overwinter. interesting. I didn't know that. They're not feeding on them. So it's not really a food resource so much as the availability of those trees. Hmm. So as we said, they then travel back up north, each successive generation getting farther and farther north until the summer ends and they start to come back down and the cycle repeats and repeats and continues for millennia. Sarah, what is your impression so far of this migration? I just, I genuinely can't even believe it happens. And that was a very terrible way to say this because of course I believe that it happens, but it's just, <laughs> it is so mind-blowing and I'm just imagining I'm totally anthropomorphizing and imagining the conversations that these butterflies <laughs> have with each other just equating it to like Oregon Trail where you, know, you <laughs> just imagine the people traveling in their covered wagons and the discussions that they might have or, or even just doing a road trip today like oh how many miles do you think we can get in tomorrow like <laughs> 
Oh man. It, I think it's worth reveling in the fact that we get to have these in large parts of the United States, this amazing insect that lives in our backyards. We get to see them and they're part of this huge cycle that happens year after year where their ancestors, you know, have made this journey. It's so crazy. I can't find my way back from work if one road is closed. And they are able to go to Mexico despite never having been there. Despite never having been there. Yes. And they go back to the same locations. It just, it is, yeah, it's just another one of those natural wonders. I was going to say, like, it's, it to me is basically close to a miracle. I don't think a miracle necessarily has to be like a divine intervention. Maybe that's the legitimate definition, but like, it is a miracle that this happens (laughs) in my opinion. Um, and that we get to live alongside it. Well, that brings us to our current predicament. Sarah, you have talked to us about insects before. What are some challenges with estimating insect populations? Because now we're trying to look at the declines. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are lots of the, just the logistical things that we we talked about just in terms of staffing and funding and all of that right. kind of thing, getting the, the interest and the awareness raised about it. But also when you talk about, I mean, we talked about this being thousands of butterflies, hundreds of thousands of butterflies that might make this trip. So we're we're going to be talking about how this population of monarchs has been declining, but even so, there's a lot of butterflies in the world. There's a lot of insects in the world that it, it makes it hard to count. And you talk about seeing those trees covered in butterflies, you can't count them individually. So we'll talk about how these counts get done. Uh, so that can be a problem. And then insect populations can also fluctuate. Weather events or something like that might cause populations to spike or fall. Um, And so their population trends can sometimes be a little bit difficult to predict because of events like that. Yeah. Think about the graph of an insect population line because of how short their lifespans are, it's going to be very jagged. Like That's in, true as well, yeah. if you zoom into the, the scope of that over the course of months, it's going to be up and down and up and down and up and down, but you're looking at the broader trends. Monarchs are able to bypass some of these issues because unlike, like if you were trying to count the amount of crickets in the United States, think about the amount of places you would have to look and like compare one city to another and take into account all these variables. All the monarchs that migrate are really in two general locations. And so every year for the last couple of decades, they have been able to do, I believe it's the Thanksgiving count that they will estimate the butterfly populations in their overwintering sites. They're not really missing any of the ones that they're counting as migrating. Remember the Florida ones, they might be hanging out in the South of Florida. They're not counted in the count, but they are, you know, aren't actively migrating. We're trying Mm -hmm. to count the ones that are actively migrating. So scientists are able to get a much closer picture to what's going on. It is still a big estimate. So actually let's start with the Western population, which is smaller. We are looking at declines in that population starting in the 1980s was when they first started counting them. And the Western population in the 1980s was about 10 million butterflies estimated. So that's a lot of butterflies. (laughs) It shrunk to 1,914 in 2021. That is a 99.9% decrease in this species. 
when you're reading the, like the IUCN is where I got most of this information because they were the ones who just came out with the report and they were talking about the likelihood of what they called quasi extinction, which I'm not a hundred percent sure how that differentiates, like what level we're at. But if you think about the risk of something happening to less than 2000 migrating butterflies versus 10 million, there's a much higher chance of extinction over the next 10 years for this population. The Eastern population, the numbers are much more widely sort of spread out because there are still millions of them left. So the the latest estimate for Eastern migratory monarch butterflies is about 44.3 million butterflies that were counted in the 2021 to 20, or sorry, 2020 to 2021 migration season. That's when both of these numbers are from. It's worth mentioning that the Western population has seen a bump back up. I think it's at something like a hundred thousand, which is obviously very good when you're laying hundreds of eggs each over several generations, you have the ability to bounce back, but (laughs) that's still a far cry from 10 million. (laughs) Yeah. So this is part of that, what you were talking about. You're going to see some of those up and down spikes with that shorter lifespan. You're laying lots of eggs so you can rebound your population, but the overall trend, even if, right, you know, the, we rebounded a little bit from 1900, the overall trend is still decreasing and you can find graphs that show you that overall, they're pretty drastic declines on both ends. On both ends. So from 1996 to 2014, the Eastern population declined by 84%. In the last 10 years, those declines have slowed. There really is, it's a hard estimate when you're talking about millions of butterflies. So when they were estimating those populations, they said there's between 14.5 to 127 million butterflies in the Eastern population. But they have the best guess estimate at 44.3 million butterflies. But again, even though that number's big, these are the butterflies that travel the 2000 miles. You need a lot of butterflies to maintain this phenomenon. Right. So yeah, you can, we have our our insect apocalypse episode where we talk a little bit about this and why those big numbers can sometimes, I think, be bad. They, They keep people from thinking that it's a big deal when it actually is a big deal, but also talk about the difficulties with these population estimates. What I believe they do pretty much with these monarchs to get these estimates is they are figuring out what area basically these Mm -hmm. monarchs are covering. So they're looking at these tree filled trees filled with monarchs and they are taking the area of the land that they're covering and getting their estimates from that. So even if you look at those numbers, you, you know, the acreage or the hectares of land that these butterflies are covering, and that has just shrunk drastically yes over the decades yeah it's it's not great so we've established these are really amazing animals they make this crazy migration that requires large populations to sustain and we've talked about now how they've declined really really drastically over the last couple decades so what's happening why are we seeing these huge declines monarchs face a lot of threats. There are lots of similar threats that other species face, but I think that the two things that we've talked about that I said that you should keep in your brain, one, that monarchs exclusively eat milkweed plants, and two, 
that are at least as larva and two that they overwinter in basically two very specific locations. Those are two big factors in here, but we're going to talk about a bunch of the threats, Sarah, I wanted to do, I was going to say dealer's choice, but you're not the dealer. So your choice on, <laughs> on which one you wanted to start with. Let's go habitat loss. Cause I feel like that is the, the big thing that we talk about with so many species as the big factor. And it's a two pronged, like you just said, it's the migratory route as well as just their non-winter habitat where that milkweed and flowering plants for those adult butterflies is going to be important and protecting those wintering grounds that they need as well. And they've faced losses in both counts for different things. Yeah. We can start with the wintering grounds in Mexico in, uh, I believe it was the eighties, the Mexican government declared the areas where the monarchs were migrating to a protected area. What we've learned is that when you declare something a protected area, that doesn't mean that it is protected per se. <laughs> so, um, that area faced major declines from both legal and illegal logging, um, which obviously those butterflies need those trees to land on as well as clearing for grazing land. Um, since then it has been much more protected the efforts of that government plus nonprofit organizations and businesses. Remember, this is not a butterfly. This is the butterfly. (laughs) This is the one thing monarchs have that most other insects don't is they have funding and they have advocates. And so much of that habitat loss has stalled. There's definitely more protection now than there was before. Um, but there's some other factors that are going on there in California. They have also lost some of that grounds, but they don't have federal protection. So there's also just some changes going on that are going to impact that. And we'll get to that in a second, but even bigger than that, just like scope wise, this is a animal that covers almost the whole of the United States. Right. And so it needs, yeah. Yeah. And it needs good point. Canada and Mexico as well. They need a consistent habitat throughout that migratory route. So you can't just have like, oh, Pennsylvania is super great. If they can't get to Pennsylvania, then it doesn't matter. Right. This Um, is not a nonstop flight (laughs) that they're doing. (laughs) They need stop and fuel. And we will say, as we're talking about this, a couple of things to, to sort of point out and clarify adult monarchs don't just need milkweed. Adult monarchs can feed off of lots of different flowering plants. So having flowering plants, native pollinator gardens, those sorts of things are going to be helpful for those adults. But those babies have to have milkweed. And that is not an exaggeration. And this is true for a lot of butterfly species is those caterpillars only have one plant that they can eat. That is the plant that they are they need to survive. So that's the the inaccurate part of a very hungry caterpillar when he's eating through all of those different things. things. They must have their host plant. And that's the monarch butterfly is going to lay her eggs on milkweed plants. So that's why you hear so much about that plant in specific, in, in relation to monarchs. So both of those things are important. Great point. So let's talk about milkweed for a second. Milkweed is a native plant here in the United States. It's actually not a singular plant. Mm -hmm. It is a a family of plants. The genus that typically 
includes most of the milkweeds we're thinking about is Asclepsius. But uh, here in Pennsylvania, we've got a native swamp milkweed, but there's lots of different types of milkweeds that fill a lot of different habitats. So this is not the same species necessarily here that you're also going to find in Florida and Georgia and Mexico, but there are different milkweeds that are found all throughout their habitat area, because again, that's the only thing that they're going to lay their eggs on. The adults will drink nectar from the flowers of the milkweed. So will bees. It's very pollinator friendly, aphids like it too, but it basically, you'll see any type of bug on it. They're very excited about it. I wore a semi-thematic shirt. (laughs) Save the bees. Um, but you're right. The adult butterflies will feed on the nectar of flowering plants. It's really important when you are creating habitat for them, that you have plants that bloom throughout the season. That's not just at one particular point, because they're going to need food and energy to be able to keep traveling to different areas, depending if they're staying or they're passing through. So milkweed, we've seen big declines in due to several reasons. We named it milkweed anything we name a weed, we typically are trying to get rid of. Um, we didn't name it like, you know, monarch flower or anything like that. No, we named it milkweed. And it's because we'll change the name (laughs) right now. There you go. When you, when you break off milkweed, it, it secretes this milky substance. That's the kind of toxic thing about it. It makes sense for people who are not conservationists naming these things long, long time ago, but it, it did give it a bad rap. Normally you'd find this along roadsides. You'd find it in meadows. You'd find it in agricultural fields. Um, and so a lot of those butterflies were just like, Oh, it's a soybean field. And this milkweed happened to crop up here. I'm going to lay my eggs on that. And they would kind of feed off of the plants that are in the area. Um, but we've seen a dramatic loss of milkweed partially due to increasing use of an herbicide called glyphosate. So you probably know it as Roundup. Basically, big corporations who have genetically modified seeds, we'll do our own episode on GMOs. It's going to do lots of research. In general, GMOs, you don't have to really worry about as much as a human consumer. But in this case, they have modified the soybean and corn to be glyphosate resistant. This is Roundup Ready corn. That's you. If you're familiar at all in the agricultural world, you'll hear Roundup Ready corn. Yeah. So basically normally when you spray Roundup on things, everything dies. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to kill weeds and anything that it sprays because it is not selective. But in this case, they've been able to genetically modify this corn and the soybeans so that you can spray it all you want with the Roundup. It's not going to die, but all of the weeds that are impacting your crops will. And that has killed off lots and lots of milkweed and other plants that the monarchs use. So that sort of drifts into another conversation about pesticides. So pesticides are also not very selective. Have you used pesticides? on your sunflower at all? No, I have not. And I don't plan to. The pesticides, I don't use outdoors. I'll use things inside the Mm -hmm. house, but I have yet. This is why I had my whole dilemma about the bugs that swarm my house. I have not sprayed anything or put anything down because of the impact that it could have on other insects that I don't want to harm. Yeah. When you're using a pesticide, again, it's not one of those things that generally 
targets one specific species that we don't like. Generally, they are more um, generalists. So they're going to get rid of whatever sort of insects because they have similar biologies. Whatever it's targeting, mm-hmm. it's going to kill whatever it comes across. So that could be an on-contact thing. This is why a lot of pesticides that you might buy will tell you not to spray when you're around bees. Um, so you wouldn't spray it in the morning. You might want to spray it out at night instead. And then a specific type of pesticide called a neonicotinoid, um, which is actually derived from the nicotine plant, which is used systemically in plants. That specifically is one of the things that they're blaming for the decrease in bees. So Sarah, your shirt, (laughs) as well as butterflies. So these nectar drinking insects will sometimes ingest this. It can either kill them or it can slow down their development. And obviously timing is very important with these butterflies because of the migration. So if it slows down their development, that can also impact their ability to migrate on time. Sarah, our old friend climate change is on this list too. There is another yeah. big one. I Well, I mean, we talk about the, the cues that these butterflies have yeah. to do all of the things that they need to do, whether that's migrating or reproducing or whatever. And you talked about the temperature range they need to have. Climate change is changing those things. And so there may be, it's another one of those sort of question marks, I think, altogether about exactly what the fallout's going to be, but there's no question that that there are impacts. So whether that's the temperature or the precipitation that's changing, is this going to change the signals they're getting? Is this going to change the habitat that's suitable to them? I think we're starting to get to the point where we are putting in uh, enough puzzle pieces together to be able to better predict what's going to happen. So like, for example, we know what happens to butterfly populations when we have warmer summers. Warmer summers tend to reduce the population of monarch butterflies and warmer springs prompt the butterflies to deplete their energy sources and leave their winter grounds early, even if the plants maybe aren't blooming at the same time. So like you said, messes up that seasonality. So we know that hotter summers do that. We also know that we are going to continue to get hotter summers. We are starting to be able to make better predictions about what will happen to specific spaces of land. So they think the space in California that they currently overwinter in, the suitable habitat will move inland. So it will change. Change their, And will they change along with that? You know? Right. Yeah. That's the big question. Um, In Mexico, they believe that it will also change temperature parameters, but that will also result in uh, wetter winters and more precipitation. Remember, wet butterflies don't hold heat as well and will cause massive die-offs. So, um, for example, in 2002, there was a winter rain in the areas where the monarchs were overwintering and 500 million monarchs died that winter. So this is like very troublesome that they're sort of all in one spot. The good thing about having your population spread out is that it makes you more resistant to these things. Yeah. Harder to count, but harder (laughs) Harder to to wipe out too. Harder to count, harder to kill is what I say. (laughs) Um, So uh, these are referred to often like the along these lines is stochastic events. Sarah, are you familiar with stochastic events? We talked about it a little bit in our insect apocalypse. My recollection is just that they're sort of random events, right? Sort of unpredictable. It's exactly. It is a fancy way of saying like, 
random bad luck in a lot of ways. <laughs> like um, stochastic events would include things like a crazy winter storm wiping out a bunch of the trees that these guys live in. Not specifically predictable, definitely not preventable. It's just happening in those areas. And when we have climate change, those stochastic events are going to increase because we're going to have more extreme weather. And so it's going to be harder and harder for these butterflies to be able to have a reliable place to overwinter. Uh, another threat is invasive species, which I was curious a little bit about. Um, so part of this milkweed family adjacent is um, swallowwort vines. It's not something I'm familiar with at all. I'm not from, we don't sell them. I hadn't actually been familiar with this as an issue. Me neither. To the monarchs either. So this is interesting. Thanks IUCN authors. Yeah, they they list all, you can read all of this on the, the IUCN red list page. You should do it. But yeah, it's basically an adjacent species that the females will confuse for milkweed, but that the babies can't eat. It's from Europe. Sad. I know. I know. Which is like setting them up for success. Right. Oh nothing. my gosh. Um, it's from Europe and it's been introduced. I think it's cultivated some place, places, but I think it's mostly escaped. I, mm-hmm. I know that like we don't sell it and we sell a pretty wide variety of things here in Pennsylvania. But uh, yeah, that's, that's one of the ways invasive species impact monarch butterflies. There are some also with climate change, some native pathogens some bacteria and parasites that get into butterflies that can also increase due to these different temperatures. I just thought of that because they are not invasive parasites. In this case, this is actually a native parasite that will also impact them. Okay. My last one on the list is monarch releases. So (laughs) this is a relatively more recent one too, right? That I feel like we're starting to see and hear more insect like I know the Xerxes society has kind of said yeah we think probably this baby isn't the greatest yeah (laughs) I'm trying to say it nicely because I know that I know I participate in one every year um and and again like it's I have mixed feelings about it yeah yeah 100% have you ever done a monarch release I never have no I've never seen one I've never participated in one I know folks that have done the raise your own butterflies and and whatnot, but I I have never done it. Is it disease? Is that the big concern with these disease from captive reared ones spreading to the wild or? Yes. My understanding of the papers that are currently out is not that something has happened, but something could happen. Mm -hmm. So that's one of my like small skepticisms. I am in general, like this is where my bias comes in. Generally, I am much more of a like be preventative Mm -hmm. with your conservation. And so this is my bias because I've been part of these. So they're worried about disease. If there's a disease within a breeding center of these monarch butterflies, you release them outside that it can spread to the population. There's concerns about um, potentially impacting genetic diversity of wild populations, depending on basically there's a select number of species that the U S government allows you to release. I believe Washington now the state of Washington doesn't let you release monarchs anymore, but there's not a lot of harvesting guidelines for breeders. Um, so are they taking them out of the wild? Are they just breeding their own stock? What's that about? And the other one is that these captive reared ones. And I think that this is probably also 
pretty applicable to the guys that you raise inside, which lots of people I know do. Lots of people I know take caterpillars out of their garden and they raise them inside and then they let them go. Those ones probably don't have as much of a chance to migrate successfully as one that lived outside their whole life. I totally agree that releasing butterflies in itself is not a good way to reverse the decline of native monarch populations. Does that make sense? Yes. Numbers wise. And remember, like we're talking about millions anyway. So your little, for example, the place I work is doing 400 this year. That is still pennies on the dollar compared to the overall population. Right. So that the flip side is how many people are you inspiring to love the monarch? I get where you're coming from. Yeah. So that's been an extremely important part of my job is we're doing this butterfly release. We would probably, I've talked about it. It's my dad's store. At the end of the day, I don't, you know, I'm not in charge, but I have a say. And so how can I use my say to best influence this into a conservation direction? And for me, that has always been, you have to have educational seminars alongside this. I also want to point out that like, This is an extremely meaningful event for a lot of people in our communities. A lot of people honor their loved ones here. There's lots of of cultural meanings to monarch butterflies, but it is not worth it if we're not also partnering it with really important education. And so last year, a big part of, I do about a half hour, 20 minute talk with people was talking about how what we're doing today is not going to save monarch butterflies. It's what you can do at home. And so we're in a good position where it's like, and here's the milkweed to do it. Please buy this, <laughs> you know, and here's, we, we make a big section. That's all native plants that these butterflies will use and will bloom throughout the year and try and set it up best we can so that we can get those little patches of habitat. And we have seen some result from that. I think it'd be interesting to measure we don't have like a really good evaluation tool, but I don't think that you should do monarch releases without that educational element. Like it shouldn't be, it's not the eco-friendly way to like celebrate your wedding, for example. Right. Like that's some people do the release there. If if you're thinking that's like the most eco-friendly thing you can do, because we're talking about an endangered species, it's not according to conservationists. So Yeah. I feel the similar way about the butterfly bush. The butterfly bush is not a host plant for monarch butterflies, but it feeds the adults and it blooms like all summer and people love watching butterflies. And so to a certain extent, it has a conservation positive as well as a conservation negative. Right. And I, that's where I I think it, it just comes down to understanding it, understanding why you would or would not, and and you can make that choice, but under, yeah, understanding which stage you're helping out and, you know, for the release. Yeah. I think you just need to be really thoughtful about it, which clearly you are. We'll obviously learn more and read more as these organizations learn more about what the impacts might be, but yeah, maybe instead of raising monarchs with your kids, just go on a monarch butterfly walk 
you know, and see, see what kinds of species you can identify. Get yourself a little butterfly field guide and walk around and look for monarchs and look for other species of butterflies, you know, see if you can find milkweed, look on, find the eggs, find the caterpillars and just do that. Like have those up close experiences with those butterflies in their natural habitat rather than trying to create the habitat inside your house. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it always comes from like a good feeling Absolutely. for people. They're like, if they're inside, then I don't have to worry about it being too cold or too hot or something eating them. Mm-hmm. They'll survive to adulthood. And then I let them go. And like, what could be the harm in that? And what scientists are saying is like, it, it just might not actually help that individual butterfly or their populations in a way that's worth it. But I also know that like people would come to me and say, this is what I did during the pandemic to stay sane and feel like I was making a difference. And I wasn't going to be like, well, actually, you know, right. you were actually hurting butterflies, but I try to encourage them creating that habitat in your backyard is really important. The other thing we started doing last year that we'll do again this year, but better because I didn't do it very well last year. So we actually worked with Monarch Watch and they do a census where you can catch the butterflies and you put little stickers on them. I still, and then that's, you release I want to do that someday. It's super cool. That's just Cause yeah, it's basically little stickers. It's literally a sticker and it's got a number on it. And we were supposed to, and so basically down the line, other people might catch them and find you're one with the sticker and they'll be able to see, oh, they came from this area of Pennsylvania and now they're here in North Carolina. And that will also help us understand these butterflies, like what, what seasonality is important to them and, um, which ones were reared at home. Cause that's actually one of the designations on there to see how impacted they are by being reared outside of the normal conditions. Um, I know we have been here for a while, so I want to just moved to the last section here. Moving to the future, the IUCN is not the government. So when one of the things that I saw in some of these articles is they're like, the monarch butterfly has been put on the endangered species list. And then I would reread it and it would say an endangered species. Right. I'm glad you're mentioning this though, because this is a really important distinction for what has actually happened which we've talked about the IUCN and the IUCN red list before they have been put on classified on the IUCN red list. Mm-hmm. They are listed as an endangered species, this migratory population of monarchs. This is not the same thing as federal protection here in the United States under the Endangered Species Act. This has been a discussion with monarch butterflies, which I think makes it even more confusing because it's been something that's been talked about as to whether they are going to be or should be listed um, and the endangered protected under the Endangered Species Act. That is still not the case. The worst part of it is that it was either 2020 or 2021 that they came out with it. But yeah. the um, basically they said they weren't protection but we have other higher priorities. Yes. That should be a podcast episode too, is prioritizing. <laughs> prioritizing. So the, the the short story of that is that when you list a species on the Endangered Species Act and put them on the list, you have to also have a corresponding recovery plan. And that means resources. So it's not just staff resources, but it's also like where, what habitat are we protecting? What sort of laws does this take? If they were put on the Endangered Species Act, you would not really be allowed to catch them under normal 
circumstances. If we'll, we'll do another episode on that one, but like, it's very strict on how you could interact with them, but they are a candidate species, which means that they're reevaluated every year. So it'll be interesting with this new IUCN classification, if they decide to then list them. And if they decide to list them in the same way that a lot of our endangered species that we don't have in our backyards are listed and, and what that will mean for their habitat. It could release some federal dollars into further protecting their habitats. We're really lucky with monarchs that lots of organizations are interested in protecting them, but clearly it has not stopped the decline yet. So it's really important we get everyone involved and we'll tell you how to do that in just a couple minutes. Sarah, anything to add? Nope. I will have more in the wrap up. So okay. All right. And we're back with the last part of our episode, which is the section where we challenge you to do something related to today's podcast topic. It's Monarchs. If you are not here in the U.S., I really hope that you will read the IUCN Red List page about Monarch Butterflies. It's really detailed on all the things that we talked about today, but even more than what we've talked about today. So you'll learn even more if you read that page. Yes, you can read the press articles, but we have covered everything that's in one of those press articles today. So um, I would highly recommend going straight to the source. These are the people who worked really hard to collect this data and cite like over 100 papers that contributed to all of this data. If you are here in any sort of monarch habitat, I want to challenge you to see if you can find a place to plant milkweed. Now there's an important distinction. In the South, people will plant tropical milkweed, but this is not the stuff you should plant because it basically tricks, it, it blooms long enough that it tricks the butterflies to stay. We talked about how this is not entirely a biological process. It's also these decision-making butterflies being like, yeah, Florida's good enough. I will stay here. <laughs> it's the same thing. They might say, ah, oh, Georgia's good enough. There's milkweed late in the season and then it gets cold. So, um, you want to plant some sort of milkweed that is native to your area. If you don't plant it this week, that's okay, but find plan. We're going to plan a spot. So Sarah, do you have a spot in, in your yard at your work? Does your work have a butterfly garden? We do have multiple butterfly gardens around. So that's nice at work. Good. I do. I mean, I have lots of potential places to plant milkweed. And this has been on my list of things to do again for a while. Finding it can be a challenge. So start planning that to take a look around and see where you can get your milkweed from. But yeah, this is the thing. I feel like once again, this is the thing like people, a lot of people know milkweed is connected to monarchs. Hopefully now you understand a little bit better about why, but I feel like this is one of those situations where the thing that you hear about, this really is, is it. really, this yes. is the thing to do. And this, I guess, was what I was thinking as, as you were wrapping up the discussion is the thing that just struck me the most was sort of right there at the end. You just, it just really hit home. This is now, this is an endangered species that you can have in your backyard. An mm -hmm. endangered species. And that, I mean, it's sad that it is an endangered species that it's gotten to that point. But how cool is that? You can have a direct impact on the habitat of an endangered species. 
by doing it. And that is awesome that we can contribute in that way. It's so cool. We have such an opportunity. There's, you know, if everybody turned their lawns into monarch gardens, we would be bigger than a national park. Like you see that everywhere all the time, but it's true to a certain extent. And remember, this is not just about them staying there all summer. It's about giving them a stepping stone to get to the next place that they're migrating to. Hoping that super cool migration happens. Yes, you are. This is a phenomenon. This is this is unique to our area. It's so cool. I would highly recommend if you can find the plant, find the plant. The seeds require a certain amount of cold stratification, which can make them harder to germinate. As someone who works at a garden center, it should not be hard for your local garden center to get it. So sometimes it's you asking them, you know, when you stop by, you got any milkweed yet? That will then make somebody, because most places are really small, say, Hey, have you seen that on the availability? Do any of our growers have this? Should we start growing this? It's making it available for more people. Sometimes it's just about having the courage to ask if you don't see it. So that's, that's my challenge for the week. I know that it's very specific. Um, and obviously there's lots more things you can do. You can go to the IUCN red list. You can go to monarchwatch.org. That's another great website that'll actually help you be involved with the conservation, but really it starts with milkweed and you can go from there and have a whole certified wildlife habitat. You can have a monarch habitat, but it starts with milkweed. So if you don't have it yet, you should get some. Love it. Thank you, Casey. That was super fun. Butterflies are amazing. Do all those things. Also watch a video of a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Crazy. Uh, and let us know, let us know what you're doing. You can find this on all of the places. We're on Facebook, a little greener podcast. We're on Instagram at a little greener pod. We're on Twitter at a greener podcast. You can email us at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. And we're on YouTube now. <laughs> Should yeah. you want to find us there? We're not putting our actual videos of us talking. So you won't unfortunately get to see our smiling faces, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you want to look at it, because that would be a whole nother editing project that we just don't currently have time for but we will put just you'll be able to see the audio will be up there and that is nice because youtube has captions available so if you know somebody who might want to make use of those captions they are auto captions so they're not perfect but hopefully helpful enough to somebody who might need them or if you just like to use youtube as your listening platform the new episodes will will start appearing on youtube but the older ones our, our sort of backlog, we will try to put up slowly over time. This is our hobby and Sarah already puts a lot of time into this. So thank you, Sarah, for getting us on YouTube. Go check us out, guys. Recommend us to a friend if you can. Leave us a review if you want. And that helps us spread the word about cool species like monarchs and all sorts of other things. So thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.